This day is fragile, soon it will end. And once it has vanished, it will not come again. So let us love with a love Stephanie, let's take our Bibles, look over the book of Revelation tonight, <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, <clears throat> we're going to begin in verse 8, <clears throat> we'll read through verse 11. I believe there's a shower tonight, maybe. Something like that going on from what I hear. It's about time some of you cleaned up. <clears throat> That'll be good. Chapter 2. <clears throat> Chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation, and poverty. But thou art rich, 
And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the, uh, excuse me, are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. You shall have tribulations ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. In the opening chapters of Revelation, we find seven literal churches being addressed and written to. Doctrinally, they likely deal with churches that will exist during the tribulation period as well. Not only were these literal churches that existed in those days, but they're also representative of the professing church down through the church age. That particular aspect or truth was not revealed to the early church. And for good reason, I'm sure you might already know. Let's face it, they wouldn't have had any incentive to watch for His coming if indeed they knew He would be there immediately. If they knew the exact time and place, they wouldn't have had to watch and wait. However, the distinctive characteristics of each of these church periods doesn't disappear with the next period. But instead, it continues down through the next period and so on until the very end of the age. And unfortunately, it's not the good things that continue, but it seems that the bad things are passed down. Until finally, when we do arrive at the return of Jesus Christ, the imperfections of the visible professing church leads us and ends us in apostasy. This particular passage here in chapter 2 is written to the church at Smyrna. And many believe that it represents the period of time between about 100 and 325 A.D. The the passage states, Ye shall have tribulation ten days. Many believe that it points back to a time when uh, there were ten great persecutions under the Roman emperors beginning with Nero, starting in 64 A.D. to Diocletian in A.D. 310. The believers are exhorted and they're encouraged and they are moved to be faithful unto death, to be consistent, to be determined, to give no thought whatsoever of turning back and retreating, but instead be willing to even give their life if necessary for the cause of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we read, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why must we remain steadfast and unmovable? What is the reason or the purpose that we must remain faithful? We live in a world and It seems that it's growing ever darker. Why do we as believers need to stand? And why do we need to continue to remain faithful? Well, tonight I just want to share three simple thoughts and reasons why we need to remain faithful. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll consider those three briefly tonight. 
Father in heaven, once again I come to you and I ask, Lord, that you would <clears throat> fill me with your spirit, Lord, that you would uh, speak to my heart, Lord, and give me the message you'd have for each and every one here. <clears throat> Lord, uh, I have some notes on a page. And Lord, there's no doubt that <clears throat> the truths that are bound in, or written on those pages is good truth, but Father, just having some words on a page is not going to get the job done. We need your Holy Spirit, Father, to come alongside and to drive home the truth of your word. Drive it deep in our hearts and, Lord, may it be firmly placed there so the devil could not come and steal it away. God, give to me now your blessing and, Father, help me to share these truths in a very practical and powerful way as your Holy Spirit directs. May you just anoint every listening ear and help us to hear with spiritual ears. And Lord, may we be more convinced than ever when we leave that we must remain faithful. Father, we'll thank you. We'll praise you for what you will do. In Christ's name, amen. I have three reasons why I believe it's important that we remain faithful and I'm positive and I'm sure and confident that we could come up with a number of others as well. But first of all, let me say that there is a generation to follow. Why must we remain faithful? Because there's a generation to follow. You know, their future depends on our faithfulness. You know, the state that we leave this world in when we go does matter. What will the church look like when we finally leave? When we take our last breath, when we ultimately take that final journey, when we are graduated into heaven itself, how will the church look? And what state will it be in for the next generation? Will there still be faith? Will there still be standards? Will there still be a Bible that is believed? And lived. We have the testimony of Peter Alex D.D. He says between A.D. 800 and 1000, some European Anabaptists were ridiculed with the name Waldensians as a result of their graphic, geographic location in the Valley of the Alps. Some were also nicknamed Catheri, which means pure ones. They were named that because they insisted on a regenerate church membership evidenced by holy living. Members had to be saved and they were expected to live holy lives separated from the world. Peter Alex was a learned scholar and historian of the Church of England and he furnished us a list of 33 errors that were charged against these Anabaptists by the Jacobite priest, Ranerius. And while some of the charges are undoubtedly false, and others are, without a doubt, twisted truth, these excerpts indicate the doctrine and the practice of these particular Baptists. He says, quote, They affirm that they alone are the church of Christ and His disciples. They declare themselves to have apostolic authority and the keys of binding and loosing. They hold the church of Rome to be the great whore of Babylon, 
mentioned in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, and all that obey her are damned. They hold that none of the ordinances of the Roman Catholic Church that have been introduced since Christ's ascension ought to be observed as being of no worth. The feast, fast, orders, blessings, offices of the Roman Catholic Church, and the like, they, utter, they utterly reject. They say that when first a man is baptized, they say that, excuse me, they say that then first a man is baptized when he is received into their sect. They do not believe the, the body and blood of Christ to be the true sacrament, but only blessed bread, which by a figure only is called the body of Christ, in like manner as it is said, and the rock was Christ. And such like, according to them, that there is no purgatory, and all that die do immediately pass either into heaven or hell. That therefore the prayers of the church, Roman Catholic Church for the dead, are of no use. They hold that the saints in heaven do not hear the prayers of the faithful or regard the honors which are done to them. They add that the saints do not pray for us. Wherefore, also they deride all the festivals which we celebrate in honor of the saints and all other instances of our veneration for them. For them, They do not observe Lent or other feasts of the, the church. They do not receive the Old Testament, but the gospel only that they may not be overthrown by it, but rather be able to defend themselves therewith, pretending that upon the coming of the gospel, all old things are to be laid aside. Now I want you to know that again, this is being spoken to us by a, basically a Roman Catholic historian, an actual Jacobite priest. This is the perception that he had of these particular Anabaptists in his day, it sounds very much to me like Baptists today in their beliefs and their positions. These Baptists lived hundreds of years before the Protestant Revolution ever took, a Reformation ever took place. Listen, do not believe for one moment that Baptists are simply Protestant. We are not. The Baptists came not forth from the Reformation. We were already existing prior to and before. These particular Baptists of that day remained separate from the Roman Catholic Church and they maintained the same church doctrines and they practiced the same church practices for which modern Baptists even today are known for. When we pass the baton, when we take our final breath, what condition will the church be found in? Will we be found a compromising church? Will we be found a church that has allowed the world to creep in? Will we be found a church that has neglected the Word of God and permitted the heresies of, of other churches that do not believe the Word of God to abound in our pulpits and on our stages? What does the next generation have to look forward to? I mean, will our children's children see the need to remain separated from this wicked and sinful world in which we live? Will they say that standards still have a place? Do you realize that there are some propagating and preaching around this country today that say in the next 15 to 20 years, there'll be no need to even discuss standards because they will be non-existent? That's from Baptist, unfortunately. And yet the world doesn't seem to be getting any better to me. It seems to be getting only darker and worse. I mean, will this next generation be reminded of a 
church that stood firm and professed the Word of God as their sole source for faith and practice? Will they remain separatist and stand strong on the fundamentals of the faith? Will they uphold the belief in a Bible that is perfect, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and eternal? The virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith, the premillennial return of Jesus Christ, believer's baptism and church membership. Will they have a handle on those things? Will they have entered into and continue with a church that has those kind of beliefs based and grounded and founded in the Word of God? Or will they not? What condition will we leave the next generation in spiritually? These youngsters that are gathered today have an opportunity and a wonderful privilege to see God doing something miraculous and something great in the midst of a ministry. How sad it would be for us as adults who think we know everything to squelch and to hurt and to harm their futures by rejecting what Christ is doing and somehow thwarting the efforts of God and His man and the ministry. Wouldn't it be horrible to stand between what God is doing in this church even, and hurt and harm the view and the attitudes and the perspective and the futures of these young men to say that there's no power in the church and there's no way that the world can be won and there isn't a God in heaven big enough to overcome sin. Wouldn't that be horrible? These young men have the opportunity and the privilege to see it firsthand. They have an opportunity to say, I grew up in a church where they still had some standards. I grew up in a church that believed that the Bible is still the Word of God. I grew up in a church that believes that the principles that were taught 20, 30, 50 years ago are still the biblical principles we ought to adhere to. Before we are quick to try to introduce unscriptural change, before we're there to even possibly suggest it, to the leadership of the church or to other church members, we ought to think about the next generation and what we're going to leave them. Instead of falling back and deciding that we're going to lower the banner because it's a little more comfortable for us. It's a little less taxing emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Before we get rid of our Sunday night and Wednesday night services, Before we throw out Bible conferences that extend past Sunday morning, Sunday night. Before we say that we're going to go ahead and cease from doing the kind of things we've done in the past. Let me say, let's remember, there's a generation to follow. Before we lower the banner of standards in our churches. And say there's no requirement for teachers and workers. Let's remember there's a generation to follow. And what we do in moderation, they will do in excess. We have a responsibility to pass these core beliefs and values that we've always distinguished true believers by down to the next generation. Biblical authority, freedom of conscience, separation of church and state, the New Testament church, local, visible, and autonomous. Regeneration of believers and baptism by immersion. (laughs) Baptism by immersion. The perpetuity perpetuity of the New Testament church. The premillennial return of Jesus Christ. It was sad the other day. 
Dr. Hamblin, he, he made mention of the fact that somebody re- uh, approached him after a service and said he wanted to discuss something. It was uh, discuss something with him from the Bible and asked if he had about a half hour to look basically through some things. And of course, he knew there was a problem already. And he said that half hour obviously turned into an hour. But the guy was just simply trying to get him to see that the church would go through the tribulation, at least part way through. You know, I was shocked. I'd heard that some months ago, probably last year sometime, that that, that doctrine's making a resurgence in the fundamental reigns or in the, the fundamental ranks again. And I thought, that's ridiculous. I've heard nothing of it. I mean, I, I don't hear any grumblings of it. I, then again, I'm not very connected to the outside world. Uh, I'm connected to this church primarily. But we haven't heard those rumblings. And if I hear them, we'll stomp them. But the fact is, is that I heard those things and I went ahead and I went over to the Philippines and it was amazing. As soon as I arrived in Thailand, that was the first question one of the young ladies talked to me about. And it was one, the, one of the first questions a young man came to me with, opened his Bible and said, Preacher, where do you stand and where do you, what do you believe about the return of Jesus Christ? Will the church be taken before or after or during the tribulation? I was shocked. So I had the privilege of taking him through the Word of God and expressing about three different reasons why there would be a premillennial rapture, a pre-trib rapture. And that aligns itself perfectly with the Word of God. Now, what will we leave the next generation? What will we leave the next generation? I mean, we need to remain faithful because... There's a generation to follow, and their future depends on it. But not only that, their faith depends on it. You know that your faithfulness and my faithfulness will inspire faith in them. I mean, years ago, I grew up in a home where um, football was big. My dad loved football. I mean, he enjoyed it. He coached it, and he, well, he played it, and then he coached it, and And, I mean, it was big, and he loved football. And I'm going to tell you something. um, You know what I grew up loving? (coughs) Football. Because he loved football. I was just a young boy. I wanted to be like Daddy, and since he loved football, I learned to love football too. Do you know that your children are going to learn to love what you love? If we're not faithful, how in the world can we expect them to be faithful? I mean, it's tough enough in the world in which we live to raise a generation of faithful young men and young ladies. But I guarantee you, if we fail to hold the banner high, if we fail to walk straight and true, if we fail to lift up the Word of God, let me tell you something, we're fighting a losing battle in our homes. We're fighting a losing battle in our country. See, our faithfulness will inspire faith in them. 2 Timothy 1.5, we see a young man who his mama and his grandma ultimately inspired some faith in him. It says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, Timothy, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. The Apostle Paul says, Listen, I know and recognize and I see the faith that you have, Timothy, but I also know that it was in your grandma and I know it was in your mother and now I see it in you. And may I say today, we need some daddies and we need some mamas and we need some grandpas and grandmas that will stand for the faith and live for Jesus Christ and lift up the banner of faith. Because there's another generation 
another generation that's following. And their faith depends on it. So we see there's a generation to follow. That's one reason why we need to remain faithful. But another, another reason is this. There's a judgment awaiting. There's a judgment waiting. There's a judgment of sowing and reaping. Take your Bible, if you would, look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, please. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here. Singles, where were we at this morning? What, what passage? Proverbs chapter what? 13, wasn't it? What is it? 13? Take your Bible, look real quick at Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 real quick. I just want you to see this verse because I think it's applicable to what we're just talking about before we jump to this next one and get into it too much. Just look at this verse. And I just want you to see biblically where, where, where we're at here. <clears throat> this morning we, we uh, had our lesson all outlined and ready to go. And we read through our chapter and instead of... We never did get to our lesson actually. We looked at two verses in the passage that we were reading and we had discussed those passages. And this is one of those passages. Verse 22, Proverbs. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. And the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. I want you to notice again that good man leaveth an inheritance to his children. See, that's what the world teaches. The world teaches that if you're really a good man, you ought to leave an inheritance to your children. And we say, well, an inheritance obviously is that of gold and silver and precious stones and it's about possessions and houses and lands. Man, we ought to leave our children with something. When I die, I want to leave my kids with money and I want to leave them with property and I want to leave them with all those things. I mean, that's what the world kind of teaches us. And unfortunately, may I say, the, the church has bought into that belief. What are you going to do with all that money when you die? I'm going to give it to my kids. Oh. Do anything with the work of God? Well, no, I'm giving it to my kids. I'm being a good Christian. Wait, that's not what the passage teaches, though. Let's see what the passage teaches. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. Wait, who's that? That's not your kids now. That's your grandchildren. Now, here's the reality of it, isn't it? If I would take all the people that are uh, 70 years old and over in this room, and I said, let's combine your, your total incomes every month. You know what I'd find, probably? Most of your incomes are pretty low. You really don't have a whole lot of money. Matter of fact, it's a little bit, sometimes it can, it, it inspires me to death. I'm just going to be, I'm going to share my heart and be honest with you for a moment right now. It inspires me to no end when I look at the giving of Community Baptist Temple. And I realize that 50% of the people who gave to the building fund were 55 and over. 
That amazes me. And they gave more than the rest. But they make less than everyone together. See, that does something for me. That inspires me. But it also concerns me. But on the other hand, I know they're sacrificing when they do that. Because most of them make very, very little. So here's the bottom line. If you're going to fulfill this passage in the lives of your grandchildren, you better keep working. And you better continue to make money. Because if not, you're not a good man, you're not a good woman. Because you really don't have much to leave them by the time you die. So that's obviously not what the passage is talking about. See, this inheritance isn't about your money, and it's not about leaving a house or cars or lands. It's about leaving a legacy. And how do you do that? You do that by leaving something with your children as you raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and then they turn around and raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that is leaving the inheritance to your grandchildren. We have a responsibility to not only our children, but to the next generation. I have a responsibility and had one long before I ever got to 53 years of age. 52 years of age, excuse me. I'm giving myself another year already. I had a responsibility long before that to leave an inheritance to my grandchildren. Young man, you have a responsibility to leave an inheritance to your grandchildren. It starts with your life today. And you have to invest faith into your children's lives. And then that will give them the ability to invest it in their kids' lives. And you can look back on your deathbed and go, I've left an inheritance to my grandchildren. That's what God wants from all of us. Now listen, that's what we're dealing with. We talk about why in the world should we remain faithful? Because there's another generation. We need to leave that inheritance to them. An inheritance of faith. And then we said, number two, there's a judgment awaiting. Second Corinthians 5.10, you were there. I made you leave. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Do you realize how practical that verse is to singles that are getting ready to start families? That's amazing to me. I, I get thinking about that passage. It just it blows me away. Notice one, there's a judgment of sowing and reaping, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear, the apostle says, before the judgment seat of Christ. Understand he's speaking to the church at Corinth, probably one of the most vile and wicked and sinful churches ever existed. Oh, they had spiritual gifts. Now they could... Brag about the fact that they spoke in tongues and they could brag about the fact that they healed and they could brag about the fact that they did all of these things and yet there was open sin in their churches. Wickedness abounding. Listen, just because something good seems to be taking place doesn't mean that it's good. Looks can be deceiving. The real test is found in comparing our lives and our work and our ministries to Christ and His work and life and ministry. 
But this sowing and reaping, here we are now. He says to these that are struggling in their Christian walk in life, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Listen, don't fool yourself, Christian people, he says. You're going to give an account. Even though you're saved, you will still have to stand before Jesus and give an account with what you have done with your life since trusting Him. And he says, so we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in His body according to that He hath done, whether it be good or bad. No one stands with you. You stand all alone that day. The only one that may stand with you would be the Lord Jesus Christ. But the problem is, He's the one judging you. So you stand alone there before God and give an account. And the Bible says that everyone will receive those things that are done in His body according to that He hath done, whether it be good or bad. Listen, there's a good reason to remain faithful today. Because there is a judgment that awaits. And it is a judgment of sowing and reaping. And what you sow in this life, you will reap in the next. And I'm not talking about judgment in the sense that you'll spend an eternity separated from God. That was set on Calvary. But the fact is, is that you will indeed endure a judgment. And you will have to look the Savior that died for you on Calvary, was buried and rose again the third day. You have to look Him right in the eye. And I don't know that I'll be able to do that. But if I don't give it my human best fill with the Spirit of God, I know without a doubt I never will. Not even come close. It is a judgment of loss and gain. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Some things will be lost, but then there's potential for gain also. First Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Of course, in 2 Peter 1, we've been dealing with that faith foundation, and this is what we find here again. That Jesus Christ is the foundation and only foundation. But now that we are on that foundation, if any man build their Upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest. Notice, we're all going to build something. We're all going to build on this foundation of faith. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. The question is, which will it be? You're going to build something. What will you be building with? What will your building materials be? Every man's work, verse 13, shall be made manifest. It's going to be opened up. It's going to be made visible. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. That's a scary statement too. Because not only are we building... Gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. Not only do we have to choose what building material we will use, but we need to realize that choosing that building material includes not only what we do, but why we do what we do. Someone says, I'm doing the gold work here. But the reason you're doing the gold work is because you want the accolades. You want someone to pat you on the back. 
You want someone to say, well done. You want someone to say, we couldn't do it without you. And he says, that just turned the gold into stubble. What sort it is. But I'm teaching. Why? But I'm singing. Why? But I'm soul winning. Why? Well, it's duty. I have to do it. Silver just got turned into wood. Because that's not why we do things only. We don't just do it so that we can ultimately get a better position. Because if you don't do that, you can't teach. And I want to teach, and so I guess I'll have to go soul winning. And I'm going to live a holy life, or try to. I'm not going to drink, even though I wouldn't mind having some wine from time to time at dinner. And when I go out, I wouldn't mind having some. But you can't drink alcohol in that church and teach. So that's why I don't drink. Oh, good. Keep building with your stubble and your hay. Because what sort it is matters too. And don't think for a minute your children don't know what sort it is. I don't know why they're so bitter at the ministry. Hmm. I'll take a couple guesses. Pinocchio. Mr. Woodman. As your nose continues to grow every time you say amen. And your children go, he doesn't really mean it. I know. Oh, you say that's rough? Hey, listen, if the shoe fits, wear it. And if it don't, enjoy it. And thank God that's not you. But may I say today, we pussyfoot around everything today. We do a little tap dance around all the nice sins so we don't step on any toes. Look like Buddy Epson up here. Some of you don't even know who he is. You need to watch a good episode of the Beverly Hillbillies once. Some good TV watching. Now that was a, that's some good TV. <laughs> Granny will set you straight. <laughs> he goes on to say, verse 14, If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. So there's reward or there's loss. There's that to be gained, there's that to be lost. But praise God, he says, but himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Aren't you glad we're going to be saved? But listen, we need to remain faithful. And we need to remain faithful in our heart first. Because there is a judgment that awaits us. And finally, number three. I think probably this one really should be number one. There is a Savior who loves you. And if there's one reason to remain faithful, it's because we have a Savior that loves us. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the Apostle Paul speaking again to the church of Corinth, he says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. He says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. It, it moves us, it compels us, it withholds us. 
keeps us back from things and it moves us toward things. And that love should motivate us. And every time we consider giving up and giving in, we ought to say, no, I can't because He loves me. I can't because He gave me His best. And every time our tongue is tempted to slip and to speak the world's language, we ought to say, no, I can't do that. He loved me too much. And He loves me too much to continue in this sin. And every time we're tempted to view things we shouldn't view and watch things we shouldn't watch and listen to things we shouldn't listen to and go places we shouldn't go and we ought to say, no, He loved me and loves me that much still. It ought to be the love of Christ that constrains us. It ought to be the love of Christ that's our greatest motivator for remaining faithful. Why do you serve the Lord? Why do you faithfully attend Community Baptist Temple? You're here Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. This crowd is here. Why do you come to church three times a week? Why do a number of you come out soul winning on Saturdays? Why do many of you involve yourself in the ministry and avail yourself to that? I think probably the best reason we could give is Because there's a Savior that loves me. I don't know if we got to heaven and He said, why did you do all that for me? I'm not so sure that if we just said, because you love me that much, that He'd say, sorry, you just lost all your rewards. I don't think He'd say that. I think he'd be pretty pleased. Do you know, I'm, as a parent, I was always pleased when my children obeyed me. You know, the reality is that there comes a point in a child's development where they don't, be, they don't obey you because of fear anymore. They obey you because of respect or out of gratitude and love for you. See, that's why it's important that we continue to cultivate within our children a, a, a love and a, and a grace and that we try to understand them and know who they are. And I'm not talking about trying to treat them like an equal or an adult. I'm talking about treating them like our children and expecting them to follow the rules and all of those things. But still, as they grow a little bit older and a little older, we communicate in a way where they understand or at least we try to help them understand that we care more about them then we really care even about us. That we're not wanting them just to be right and do right because it will embarrass us if they don't. We want them to be right and do right because it's in their best interest. And we love them that much that we want to see them obey so they can succeed. Not just so that we look good. Do you know how much of a challenge that is for a preacher? Do you know how difficult it can be to try to somehow convince your children, or how it could at least be difficult, I'm sure, to convince your children that you want them to behave in the house of God the way He intended them to, and that you want them to obey the Word of God as they ought to, and you want them to obey you the way God intended, because... You have their best interest at heart. 
Do you know how, that, how difficult that could be? When they're saying, I know that if I act a certain way, it's going to reflect negatively on you. I know why you want me to live that way and be that way. Because you don't want to look bad. That could be difficult for a preacher, don't you think? I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't have to deal with a lot of that. I'm grateful for that. I give God the glory for that. But I don't think you have to be a preacher to hear those words. And I just want to encourage you parents. Have high standards for your kids. Amen. That's right. Yes, sir. But work very hard to help them understand the reason you have those standards is not so that you look like a good parent or that you somehow have risen above and are the cream of the crop in the church house, but that you truly do care about them more than anyone and anything in the world and you want their life to matter and you want them to succeed. God help us to know our kids and to be invested in them and to understand them enough by communicating with them at a level, not their level, our level toward them, so that they know who we are and we understand who and what they are. Every one of these young men on this front row is unique and special. There's not one of them that is, is, is just common. Every one of them is unique. Amen. And the truth is, is that because I talk to Cody and I listen to Cody, that doesn't mean I understand what the other six are thinking and feeling. Now, I'm going to have to talk to Matthew. And I'm going to have to talk to Matthew even though they have the same name. They don't think alike. They're not alike. They're unique. If I want to help them understand that I care about them, then I have to spend time listening to them. We have to have the faith. We've got to continue in this faith. And what that means and how it plays out is, Boy, there's a lot to it sometimes. But it's not that complicated. Not so much that we can't be successful in it. This generation needs to know that we want to stay faithful and we're going to remain faithful because God loves us and we love them. Young men, when I think about doing things I shouldn't do, I think about my wife, I think about my children, I think about the church as a whole, but you know what? Often I think about, I think about you. I think about how it would affect you. Now you think about how your life will affect us. Before you go off into the world doing your own thing, now you just think about the next generation after you. If you don't stand, who will? If you don't pass the baton of the Word of God and hand it to the next generation and say this is all God's Word, perfect, inerrant, infallible, it's inspired, and everything in it will give you the ability to live your life successfully and to ultimately end up on the other side receiving reward for your life lived here. Don't falter or fail. I'm passing the baton to you. And listen, that's exactly what we need to do for the next generation. 
But this young man's going to have to pass it down too now. That means you can't let your standards slip now. You've got to remain separated, sanctified, consecrated. God help us to realize that we need to remain faithful for a couple reasons. One, there's a generation to follow. There's a judgment awaiting. There's a Savior who loves us. Father, we come to you. Lord, uh, 